welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of movie scores that are generally considered to be worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Bill Conti's score for the 1976 classic sports underdog movie, Rocky. Rocky was produced by Erwin Winkler and Robert Chartoff. It was written by Sylvester Stallone, and it was directed by John G. Avildsen. John, who's Rocky? Rocky Balboa is, as he puts it, a ham and egger, a low-level amateur boxer living a hard-knock life in Philadelphia who is suddenly given an unlikely shot at the title. Rocky is played by screenwriter Sylvester Stallone. His grizzled coach, Mickey, is played by Burgess Meredith. His sweet but timid love interest, Adrian, is played by Talia Shire, and her frustrated brother, Polly, is played by Burt Young. And the reigning heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed, is played by Carl Weathers. So when Apollo Creed's opponent for a big fight has to withdraw, he decides, as a publicity stunt, to give an unknown contender a chance. So Rocky is plucked out of his working class life. We see him attempt to win Adrian's heart and get into shape for the fight. And it all leads up to the climactic title bout at the end of the movie. Good enough? Good enough. Hey Andy, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, John. Thanks. <laughs> you know, I hadn't remembered that this movie actually takes place through the holiday season. Yeah, there's a bit of Christmas in there. Yeah, well, it starts out, his first date with Adrian uh, is on Thanksgiving. That's right. And then, yeah, we see them together around Christmas. And then the fight at the end of the movie is uh, is on New Year's Day. So an important question, I think, that people these days like to ask about movies is, is Rocky really a Christmas movie? <laughs> It's very important to some people to declare, you know, like, for example, that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Is Rocky secretly a Christmas movie, too? The word really in that question speaks (laughs) to the conspiratorial (laughs) mindset that everyone's in. They have a paranoid mindset. Like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't think it's really a Christmas movie, but might it function as a Christmas movie? Go for it. They're watching, uh, I think they're watching A Christmas Carol on TV, some old version of it. And Polly comes home and, you know, throws them out of his apartment as though, you know, no room at the inn. Are you saying that the whole movie is a parable? If you want it to be. I don't think I do. (laughs) Okay, then. That's the answer. I actually looked up to see what movie they're watching. And the correct answer is that it is the 1938 MGM version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, like I said. But the uh, music that they're listening to is not the audio from that. This is surely Bill Conti filling in. Because otherwise, this is a version of A Christmas Carol that plays Jingle Bells continuously (laughs) for several minutes. There's been so many versions of it. Maybe there is one that does that. Well, I think that, you know, our podcast episodes usually run, as you know, 70, 80 minutes, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think if we want to last that long with this score, we should talk about the TV Jingle Bells source (laughs) cue at full length. Fair point, Andy. Uh, I was... (laughs) 
When I was uh, getting ready to watch the movie, I hadn't seen it in a long time. I was like, oh, we could talk about Eye of the Tiger. That's going to be cool. I have a cool thing I want to say about Eye of the Tiger. You could say it. Eye of the Tiger is in Rocky 3, not in this movie. I forgot. Yeah, but you know, I don't think Rocky 3 is in the bucket. So if you want to no, shout out some, some Eye of the Tiger <laughs> factoids, we'll take them. Well, it's not a factoid. It's just I love, you know, that opening intro figures of the song. It always struck me as a super cool evocation of a boxer because, you know, it goes bam, 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 bam. And you're like, that's the rhythm of his punching. And you get the rhythm. So, you know, it goes jab, cross, jab, jab, cross, jab, jab, cross, hook. Right. And then the next time around, jab, jab, cross, jab, duck, jab, cross, jab. You know, there's that hesitation. Kind of sounds to me like, uh, you know, floating like a butterfly in the ring to me, right? Well, I'm glad it sounds like that to you. Doesn't it? And maybe I will hear that when next I listen to Eye of the Tiger, which I do seldom. (laughs) Now, Eye of the Tiger is in Rocky III, but it is not by Bill Conti. It's by Survivor. That's right. Yeah, it should not be in this episode. You told me we needed filler. (laughs) Yes. We only have so much to work with here, is what I'm saying. Yeah. What do you think the shortest score that we've talked about so far has been? Was it Chinatown, do you think? I think it was Chinatown or on Golden Pond. Uh That's a long time ago. I don't remember the numbers. Did you tally this one? I didn't tally the Shire, (laughs) but I got to think that this is shorter than that. I don't think there's 20 minutes of score in this. Yeah, uh, my tally was that if you include all of the source stuff, you know, including the TV jingle bells and the (laughs) song that he puts on the record player when he invites Adrian over and the mellow music he puts on when he's home alone in the first scene. Talking to his turtles. Talking to the turtles, yeah. You should have seen me. You guys hungry? No? Here you go. Here you go. You know, I read those turtles are still alive. Yes, I saw that. They're in Creed. Those very ones. It was the exact same turtles, Cuff and Link. Cuff and Link, yeah. (laughs) If you include all of that music, there's about half an hour of music. And half of it is that stuff. There is about 14, 15 minutes of score from Rocky in Rocky. So I think that must be the shortest score that we have done or probably will do. It's very, very short. Yeah, it's very short. And the reason that we're doing it, the reason that it's in a bucket is because of a pretty small subset of that score, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's pretty much because of one and a half scenes, maybe two scenes of this movie. Yeah, right. The the training montage. Training montage. The second training montage, the one where he's in better shape so he can get up the steps. The score to that is what became the song called Gonna Fly Now. And then the other scene you're talking about is, uh, you know, the end scene of the fight, right? Right, the big fight. The big fight. And neither of those is a very long piece of music either. They're the longest cues in this movie, which means they're about three minutes long. So that training montage, Gonna Fly Now, happens at just about exactly the three-quarter mark of the movie. It's about an hour and a half into the two-hour movie. And pretty much all of the music that we've heard before then has been very short indeed. John, I think we can go through all of it right now. (laughs) Yeah, we can play all of the score. (laughs) That occurred to me too. And I know, you know, the glowering robed figures of the fair use people looking in on us might be like if you play all of it you don't let's not nope no on that okay for what it's worth no one has ever seen fit to release any of this stuff 
It's not on the soundtrack because it's just these little bits that we're about to talk about. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about these little bits. Should we say at the top, you know, we've kind of sounded a little dismissive in saying how little of the music is, but maybe we should say something about what we think of the music? Yeah. What do you think? It's good, right? Yeah, I think this is a great score. I I think this is a great score, and um, now we're going to talk about how tiny a great score can be. Truly tiny. Terrific. Okay, I'm on board. But... You know, watching through this movie, if you were just watching it and pretty much in any other position than that of somebody who has to <laughs> go on a film score podcast and talk about the score, I don't think you'd really blip on this music much at all. It's very interstitial. It's very short. It's not making big claims. It feels very under the radar. So the beginning, you already heard it. It's this fanfare. That's the very beginning of the movie when the letters of the title are sliding across the screen huge. You hear this fanfare. And then that turns out to be the opening fanfare for a fight. Then that's the only music you hear for a long time. For 15 minutes. Yeah, again excluding the music he puts on in his apartment and the music that his brother is singing on the street corner (laughs) so that his brother can be in the movie singing on a street corner. Yeah, you know, we got a window into the mean streets of working class Philadelphia (laughs) with an acapella troupe on every corner. (laughs) Yeah, it's to really set the scene and the dirt, the struggle. (laughs) Boo-doo-doo-doo. Did Frank Stallone write that? Who wrote that? Yeah, that is a Frank Stallone original. And I think it shows up in all of the later movies as kind of an in-joke. That song gets brought back. But anyway. Excluding all of that, 15 minutes goes by, and then we finally hear from Bill Conti. We see Rocky doing his day job being a a thug, an enforcer, a a beat-em-up guy. (laughs) What's the name of that job? He's the hired muscle for a loan shark. Right. He goes to collect from Bob. Collector. That's what his job is. We see a day in Rocky's life as muscle. We see that it's not particularly dignified work. He gets insulted. You know, the goodness of his heart isn't worth that much here. You know, he's a bum. He's the bum mentioned by Marlon Brando in that other movie, right? (laughs) It's exactly. I didn't make that connection, but yeah, exactly. So the loan shark uh, takes him to task for not breaking the thumbs he should have broken. The loan shark's driver says something rude. So long, meatbag. Rocky yells after him. I should have broke your thumbs! And then he turns and sadly walks his back to the camera away from us. Okay, there it is. That, that was it. <laughs> then it goes to something else. Yeah, now we got 12 more minutes are going to go by. Right. So... Because I actually am a person who was in the position I described, I was going through and trying to figure out, all right, there's not much music, so what am I going to say? Well, there's music there. Why is there music there? And here's what I came up with for the little bits of interstitial music peppered throughout the first hour to hour and a half of this movie. I think they're all pretty well chosen, and they all kind of have a signposting function. Like you said, we are exposed to 
the life of this bum. You know, there's not too much to it. It doesn't have all that much going for him. And we learn about it. You know, he drops by the pet store to flirt with the mousy clerk there that he likes. And he, yeah, goes on collecting jobs and he hangs out in a bar. And it's kind of a sad little life. And Bill Conti shows up here to say, all right, we've seen it. You know, this is what you need to know about this guy. This is his life. I will put a period on that sentence by playing this. Here is a marker in what's going along. And then what happens next in the movie is sort of the introduction of a new bit of the story. He goes to his gym and, you know, now we start thinking about his boxing career, whether he even has one or not. You know, it's a corner. We, we turn a corner, right? I mean, I think it's just there's a scene change. <laughs> I don't want to overcomplicate what's going on here. This is like, we've talked about this on other episodes too, a standard technique for minimal scoring is you score the changes you score that's over we're going somewhere else and now we're sort of in interstitial space that's where it might be time to reflect feel what all this means for 12 seconds yeah sure but you know you still gotta decide what cut you want to do that on you still gotta decide where the interstitial space is so he picks we've come to the end of learning about the day-to-day life of this guy so now's when we're going to have a moment of reflection the next bit of score the next time there is original underscore and again it's this very short little interstitial bit comes at another moment of sort of reflection rocky walks this girl home and gives her some kind of uh, half-baked life advice you hang out with nice people you get nice friends you understand you hang out with smart people get smart friends you hang out with yo-yo people get yo-yo friends and she tells him uh can we say screw you on our show <laughs> We'll let her say. Hey, Marie, right. take care, you know. Hey, Rocky. Yo. Screw you, creepo. And then he kind of walks away grumbling to himself and, like, agrees, yeah, what am I talking about? I'm a creepo. Yeah, who are you to give advice, creepo? Huh? Who are you? And he's considering himself, you know, he's sort of taking a reckoning of himself. So we get a little music for that, too. Mm-hmm. Also, the scene is changing. Yeah, exactly. But there are other scenes that change without music. Many, many of them. If you were just going to pick a handful, I think this is the sort of thought process he had to go through, which handful to pick. Yeah. When is it useful to the audience to have a little bit of a reflection, to feel like things need a little bit of a summary statement or a little dash of packaging to make you know when you're supposed to start thinking about it? Yeah, I agree that they're well chosen. And I think it really works well for this movie that they are just these little dabs of feeling mm-hmm. and then you just watch the scene because the strength of the movie is how unassuming it is about all of this stuff that yeah is so simple so fundamental storytelling stuff i saw that the original new york times review the vincent canby review was uh pan what he says is This is the kind of movie they were making tons of in the 30s. You know, we've seen this before. It's all cliches. The character is its own kind of cliche. There's nothing here we haven't seen a million times. This is all kind of transparently a vanity project for this guy. And I thought, yeah, all of that is true. The thing he's wrong about is that any of this is a problem. (laughs) The movie works at this very basic level. You're just watching these scenes and they're like, is this guy charming? Yeah, he's kind of charming. And, uh, you know, do we care what happens to him? Yeah, we kind of care what happens to him. You need somebody to walk you home, you know? Hmm? No. No. 
It's a cold night, you know. If I was you and you got the money, I would uh, take a cab or something. Too many creeps around here, you know. Every other block is a creep. And that's it. If there were music there saying that it was big, that there were a lot of feelings that you should keep thinking about what the feelings are, it would be overplaying its hand. And this is just the right amount. You watch 10 minutes of movie, and then Bill Conti says... And then you get 10 seconds of music. Yeah, maybe you feel about this much about these characters, and you go, (laughs) yeah, I do. I do. I don't have a problem with that. You playing six notes on the piano? I do feel that much. I'm not going (laughs) to fight with you about this. And uh, by the end, you have been sold on the whole thing. That's how it works for me anyway. So that it's sparse is the main thing. Yes, and he also, you're right. He picks places where saying you're feeling something now, aren't you, is likely. I think unassuming, the word you use, is really key. Yeah. You know, this movie is about this unlikely success story, this bum who makes good. And the movie itself it was sort of a rags to riches story. It's a you know very low budget. Nobody wanted to make it. The producers had to take out personal mortgages to finish financing it. And so much of what winds up on the screen came across serendipitously just because of the constraints that they had. And, you know, like there were mistakes in prop making that instead of getting corrected, uh, Sylvester Stallone just like comments on in the movie so that it seems intentional. Like what? What are you referring to? Oh, like uh, when he's alone in the boxing room before the big fight at the <laughs> end. He says those aren't my shorts. He tells the promoter, yeah, you got the color of my shorts wrong. Jerkers, the post is wrong. What do you mean? Well, I'm wearing white pants with a red stripe. That's because they actually painted the color of his shorts wrong. And instead of like letting the audience notice it as a mistake, he just said it aloud himself. Same thing with his robe being baggy. Like they just got the size of the costume wrong and he just talked about it rather than let it seem wrong. Yeah, and those things become assets because it reminds you of yeah. a kind of unglamorous world and an unglamorous guy and you're rooting for that. But it's also, it makes the whole thing sort of a found object. <laughs> you can kind of tell that it's very real and spur of the moment you know like that great shot that's in the famous training montage that's in you know the heart of the gonna fly now sequence where he's sprinting alongside a big ship that's docked at the pier this tracking shot as he's sprinting along that wasn't planned at all that was just they were driving along that pier and saw that ship and the director just thought hey this would be a good idea and it's avildsen himself holding the camera out the side of a van and just driving along. And they just kind of spontaneously put it in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it wears its low-budgetness on its sleeve and it becomes a part of the charm of it. That Right. You know, if Rocky made a movie, it wouldn't be a fancy movie. That's right. Hey, uh, John, I have a question for you. You called that a tracking shot, but then you said correctly that it was actually filmed from a van. Is it considered a tracking shot if no track is laid? Oh, interesting. I don't know technically, but it seems right to me, right? Because there's a... It's certainly making the motion that tracking shots make, but I'm not sure if the tracking refers to the motion or to the apparatus i bet we could get another good couple minutes out of this discussion <laughs> let's see we've done it before and we'll do it again hey all right i think we've talked enough let's play the next clip <laughs> okay so now we're 40 minutes into the movie rocky and adrian are going on their first date on thanksgiving and they are heading out All right. That's it. Yeah. 
you know, if you want to look at it again as a signpost, you can call this the milestone for when Adrian kind of enters the story proper. I guess, but my framework for thinking about these is these are moments where feeling some emotions about these characters has become particularly easy to induce. Like, oh, look at that. Yeah. Oh, what they must be feeling. Oh, here's some music. Perfect. And now they're going to talk to each other. You know, here they are at the ice skating rink. You know how I got started in fighting? Huh? No. Am I talking too loud? Three minutes! Now that's adorable and all. It's a very cute and clever scene. It's a charming thing to watch. But there is not sweet love music playing over it because... Right. That's not the kind of life that this movie is portraying. It's not the kind of people these are. These are not people who see themselves that way. It's another serendipitous sort of found object filmmaking circumstance that created that scene where they're skating around the empty ice skating rink that they have to pay the guy 10 bucks to let them do it is that scene was conceived to be, you know, full of hundreds of ice skaters, but they couldn't afford hundreds of extras. So they kind of reconfigured it for them to be able to be by themselves. And of course, it's much better that way. Yeah. So as for things being unassuming, let's talk a little bit about musically what's going on in these tiny little cues, these miniature cues. They are mostly the same two chords, Mm -hmm. like a two chord and then the one chord below it. Sure. Sometimes it's the two chord and then the three chord, I would say. That's right. And sometimes it's two to three and then two to one and now we're done. Yeah. Well, I feel like this little motif has sort of variations on how sad he wants it to be. And when he wants it to be sadder, he uses the minor three chord. And when he wants it to be not quite so sad, he goes to the major one chord instead. You know, it's interesting because I feel like sometimes in this movie, I think that he thinks that that major one chord is pathetic a little bit. I don't think that it's a warm, happy, settled feeling when it goes down to the one. I think it's a little like, It's not a resting place. I agree. I was going to talk about that later, too. But let's go on for now. But the main thing I wanted to say about two moving to one, or indeed two moving to three, and then three moving back to two, you know, sliding around here, is that these are very small claims, small claims court. <laughs> you know, these are incredibly casual moves. Mm-hmm. I think we both watched some interviews with Bill Conti to find out who Bill Conti was. And his story was that he, for like 20 years, starting when he was a teenager, was a cocktail pianist, played in lounges. Saloons and nightclubs. Yeah, that's what kind of a move this is. It's like not going to interrupt what you're doing. (laughs) It just adds a little layer of feeling without pulling focus. They're not strong moves in the sense of having a declarative beginning and end and arriving at someplace like a move from a five to a one does. These sliding, you know, stepwise chord moves from two to one, three to, they're, uh, yeah, they're lighter. They don't have as much potential energy in them. And it's played, essentially, these have been piano solos or piano solos with a little bit of string backing. Mm -hmm. They're played like a club background pianist 
might improvise. I don't know. Is it Bill Conti playing? Were you able to find out? I would guess it is because he was a professional pianist. I bet that he would have jumped in at the session to save cost. Yeah, well, so let's talk about that. As we're saying a hundred different ways, this is music doing as little as it can. And he had incentive to do as little as he could (laughs) because the situation was, this movie was very cheap. I think a million dollars total right right for everything and everyone and he was given a fixed amount and told you know his salary was whatever was left after he paid for everything yeah a package deal it's unfortunately still pretty commonplace is for the music budget to just be a package and it's up to the composer to dole it out to get the results that he wants to pay to get right there's just an odd incentive in that in that if you could come up with a way to do it with (laughs) you know just you playing just one instrument and uh you figured out hey we don't need anything else we only need two (laughs) minutes of music and it just needs to be woodblock and you know (laughs) then you get to keep the whole thing if you can make the director happy with that you get to keep all of that money and i think bill conti figured out the true minimum that this movie could take and it turned out to be exactly the right amount but he brags in the interviews that he did the whole thing in a single three-hour recording session did the whole movie and i think that includes the stuff on the album which includes a bunch of music that you don't even hear in the movie yeah but everything with the full bands or the full orchestra all the brass you know all the actual big music yeah only one session three hours and that's three hours that includes like okay did you get that (laughs) all right we're gonna everyone moving on union mandates you gotta have uh you know 15 minutes to eat right it's incredibly fast that's like you just take the first take of everything it's a very efficient piece of work so i do think that he did what he would do if he was sitting at a piano he'd play a little like this yeah and a little like this And a very safe way to improvise when you're playing stuff like that is you play some seventh chords all in the same key. Right. Move around smoothly from one to another. You can just swim around in there as long as you need to. And it turns out to be exactly right for this movie and this character. You know, but hey, Andy, when you mentioned those interviews that we listened to with Bill Conti, that gave me an idea for something that might make a good sponsor break. Oh, sure. What's that? Well, something that was really kind of a sweet memory that he talked about was that in his childhood, an important early exposure to music and music as storytelling was when he was a kid, his father and his grandfather would habitually, after dinner, open up a piano score for an Italian opera. And one would take the female roles, and one would take the male roles, and they'd sing through the opera. So in my beginning, I, I heard my grandfather and my father singing these operatic things just horribly at the piano from beginning to end. So my recollections of music around the house, of course, was just, it was ubiquitous. Yeah, I think he says it's, you know, that was just the background sound of his childhood and that's how he got introduced to a lot of music. Yeah, and also how he got introduced to music's role in storytelling and the enormous dramatic weight that music could bear. And I just thought that was perfect because it really is so valuable to point out what a great education and resource it is to be able to just open up some sheet music and play through it. Uh Aha, I see where you're going with this. You know what's a convenient way to do that in our modern age is the subscription service Encoda, our sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) What a coincidence. Encoda is, like I said, a subscription service like Spotify or Netflix that gives you access to sheet music, to a vast library of sheet music, thousands and thousands of scores, including many opera vocal scores. 
as well as opera full scores, opera parts, opera arrangements, so that you can make music at home and explore things in your own way, singing as badly as you like. <laughs> uh, it really is the best way to get inside music and get to know it. Yeah, not just opera, of course, but musical theater and pop music and all the classical music in between. And with your subscription, you can access it on the go or at home on any of your favorite devices. Mark it up, practice, play and perform it. And uh, it's all right there without having to go to the trouble of, you know, carrying around heavy sheet music. And these are the best editions, the real editions, legitimate from the real publishers. It's an incredible resource, whether you are a professional or just someone around the piano after dinner having sheet music can enrich your life. It's really true. So go to your app store and download the Encoda app. That's N-K-O-D-A and sign up for their free trial so you can check out their entire library. <laughs> okay, so what's up next? Where are we up what, to? What's up next? All right. Well, it's a couple minutes later into Rocky and Adrian's date. They've gone skating and now he's trying to get her to come into his apartment and boy, she doesn't want to do that. Oh. She's been told not to do such things, but he does stick. seem like a sweet guy and he huh? is going through several rounds of this and finally she's charmed and feels secure enough to go up the stairs and we hear this. Yo. Yeah, I mean, it's an important moment, you know? She decides to come inside. And then the music that we hear once she's inside is... Yeah, when she's in there, so then there's one of these pieces of source music. It's a song written for this movie, and I think they bring it back in the later movies as a Adrian Love theme of sorts, even though it's just source music here, called You Take My Heart Away, being sung by two people who, as Bill Conting says in one of these interviews, they wanted to have voices in the score. He called his wife, who was working at the time as a secretary at a TV station, and he said, are any of your co-workers singers? She said, sure, some are singers. And he was like... Bring him over right now. I think she came over too, right? She's That's singing right. in there as well. Yeah. Well, when we get to the chorus in the big moment later, she is singing there. But these two people are two co-workers of his wife that he called that day. And they came over and sang this uh, love song. These are executive assistants at some TV station in Los Angeles. <laughs> you take my heart away. Away. Let's go to the next one. This is a fun way to do an episode, Andy. It's not too many movies. We couldn't have done this last time with Spartacus. You know, this was my fantasy when we first started this thing <laughs> years ago, was that we would like walk through each score, and you nixed that before we even started talking about how the West was won. You were like, I don't think we need to. You were correct. <laughs> but in this case, I think we can do it. So then next time we hear some music, now we're an hour into the movie. Rocky has been picked. He's the lucky schmo who gets to fight the champion. He does a press conference, and he's sort of disrespected in the course of the press conference that they watch on TV and then they step outside and we hear this. You hear what he has to say here? Hey. You know, I said that stuff on TV didn't bother me none. Yeah? It did. 
And again, if you're setting out to try to guess what is written on the little signposts that these little cues are, this one might have on it, we're accumulating elements of the story. Now Adrian is his girlfriend, and now he's got the fight. That's where we are now. Yeah, I hear you about that these are signposts, but to me, they're cumulative in the sense that we're building up a sense that we know Rocky, we feel Rocky, we get how Rocky's soul works. Sure. So each of these is just a little, for me, um, what do you call that? A signpost? (laughs) (laughs) Reinforcement. It's like you're practicing something. You're trying to memorize something. You got to hear it again. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's how he feels. And uh, those feelings start to feel more and more significant, even though... They are, like I'm saying, so simple and unassertive and basic. And I think that's how this movie starts to work, that the movie is doing very familiar basic things and the music Mm -hmm. is doing very familiar basic things. And they happen to be the right things for each other. They happen to line up and work. And I think this is why this score is special, even though it in some ways sounds like every TV movie score for 10 (laughs) years in either direction of this movie. It's not really interesting in a lot of ways. And yet, it gels, to use a word that we use a lot on this show. It somehow lines up. I feel like the emotions of that chord change and this little figure are just right. And I actually, I did a little experiment, thought experiment, basically. I was thinking about other go-to melancholy things that you could improvise on the piano and how they aren't quite as good for Rocky as played by Sylvester Stallone in Rocky 1976. Like, I'm talking about closely related cliches, but that have a little more harmonic activity, that have, like, a descending chromatic line. Like, he could have harmonized it like this. could have played something like this but these suggest emotional layers and complexity and subtlety that is not who rocky is this movie is about a lovable lug Mm -hmm. that's what this movie is in fact, I, I remembered how you said that you had gotten in your head that Jaws was a horror movie. And then when you watched Jaws, you were surprised to find out it had this other character. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Rocky, I had thought for years that this movie I hadn't yet seen was um, all about boxing. I had been told this was a boxing movie. And indeed, it is a boxing movie. But it actually is a lovable lug movie. That's true. When you watch it, you spend most of the time and thought on getting to love this lovable lug. This particular basicness that the music is doing, I believe it. I believe that the emotional gears in this guy's little brain... No offense to Rocky, but... Yeah, but he calls himself dumb all through the movie. He operates in a very basic way. That's part of his charm. And I believe these chords matching up with what it feels like when he feels melancholy. Mm. They're not making claims that don't... uh... Yeah, like you said, small claims. And it's making small (laughs) statements of small claims. They're very short. And they don't ask a lot of you. I think the next cue up in our laundry list of cues here... Yeah, let's do the next one. I think the next one is now going to be the longest thing 
thing that we've heard. And this is sort of, you know, the fullest statement of this melancholy theme. And this is after Mickey comes to his apartment and offers to train him and manage him. And at first, Rocky kind of freaks out and yells at him because Mickey uh, hadn't shown him respect previously and needs to get some yelling out of his system. But then after Mickey leaves, Rocky comes running down the stairs. We don't hear their conversation as he goes over and apologizes and accepts Mickey's offer of managing. We just hear this longer statement of the same stuff we've been hearing. And by now, you know, we've only heard, whatever it is, two minutes of total music and we're 70 minutes into the movie. Right. But we have accumulated a sense of an authentic heart Mm -hmm. when we hear this. There's heart in it. It has gotten there. The fact is that in a lot of other stories, music like this would sound like weak sauce because it wouldn't be a good way of conveying... You know, I mentioned Terry from On the Waterfront before. Uh If you heard this music about Terry being a bum and on the waterfront, it would be like, where's the beef, man? This is not, (laughs) you you haven't told me anything. This is not enough. This is not enough feeling for this movie making, this storytelling, this character. But for this character, it's exactly the right amount. And that exactly the right amountness of it becomes very gratifying as the movie moves on. Yeah, it's probably surprising. We're having a conversation about the music to Rocky and we're talking about whether it is or it isn't weak sauce (laughs) you know (laughs) that's not what you think of as rocky like let's get to some training music all right we're almost there well i think the next cue is the first time we see him training he wakes up early he shuts off his alarm clock goes and he drinks five raw eggs (laughs) out of the refrigerator and then he laces up his shoes and stretches and runs off in the philadelphia early morning before the sun is even up and we hear this new sound a new sound horn solo wait a minute this this still sounds sad well it does sound sad and yeah as well it might because he uh he's not in great shape this is where the deeper meaning of a sports movie comes into play somehow facing the fact that he's out of shape as he begins training is uh, facing the dissatisfaction of his life or something right doesn't the music immediately say if there's anything sad about this guy's life he's dealing with it right now because he's got a cramp He got a cramp. Yeah. And then listen to this music for his cramp. It's sad. (laughs) Well, you know, we now see him running up the stairs of the Philadelphia Art Museum, the iconic thing that happens in Rocky, right? I bet you didn't remember it sounding so melancholy and dour. I remembered. I mean, the setup and the payoff is part of what that is. Sure. Yeah, he has to have something to overcome. And what he has to overcome is that he's out of breath and has a cramp. And there is tragic music for that because it means more than the cramp yeah this theme is a sad theme and it's sad music for a sad guy I want to go back to the horn solo yeah and just the sadness that we were just talking about this is all new the score hasn't gone there and the movie hasn't gone there and he is opening up at this late stage in the movie the idea that the feeling that you have been accumulating and that you're willing to invest in this guy. Oh, now the river widens a little bit. 
that opens onto a larger space than you thought. This horn, immediately when you hear a horn, it's you can see the horizon as a musical sound. The horizon line is further away when you're listening to horn. I mean, that is the sound that Bernstein chose to begin on the waterfront, is a horn solo. Yeah, because that movie, The Horizon Line, is far away the whole time. That movie, we talked about how much feeling, how much high romantic significance he tried to get into it, and isn't it remarkable how much he dared put in there? This movie, I've been at least trying to say the opposite, that like it's staying so close to everyday movie making, everyday storytelling, and everyday music making. And then now hear this horn says you might be able to have bigger feelings about this guy there might be a bigger emotional landscape here and it does it in such a smooth way because when you know he goes outside you hear that horn it's like maybe that's a train at night or something you know it's five in the morning whatever time it is it seems like it's part of the sounds of the outdoor and you also know that he's starting a new phase he's facing a new challenge he's beginning this process and And again, it lines up just right, even though it's basic. And so now we're ready. We're ready for stuff that might feel bigger coming up. Okay, so yeah, the next thing is another one of these quick hits. A little interstitial string pad with a little piano on top. This is when Rocky is momentarily gruff with Adrian, but then he goes over and apologizes and they hug. Yo. It's okay. I'm sorry. Hey. Hey. And then the next cue up, now we get to something actually different. Now we get something really new all of a sudden. Yeah. Turns out he hired more musicians than that. (laughs) Yeah, they were smoking while... uh... No, I'm sure they did these first and then sent everyone home. That's true. (laughs) Of course, of course. You know, Sylvester Stallone himself actually quit smoking while he was shooting all the running that he does in this movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. So this is the cue that you hear when Sylvester Stallone's actual dog, Butkus... Yeah, that's right. Playing himself. Playing himself. Sylvester Stallone, Sly, had gotten so desperate that he had had to sell his beloved dog. And then when they got the money to make the movie, he went to buy his dog back. And the guy he had sold it to charged him like $15,000, I read, to uh, oh, gosh. to buy back his own dog. But he did because he loved that dog. And the dog is Butkus. And Butkus bulldog. appears in the movie as a dog named Butkus. <laughs> but did you see that the credit at the end is Butkus Stallone as dog? <laughs> But he calls him Butkus in the movie. That's correct. So it it should say as himself. Yeah. Butkus is his favorite animal at the pet shop. And now Adrian somehow is taking Butkus out for a walk. And Butkus runs with Rocky down the street together. And of course that sounds like this. Yeah. Oh, here's the whole band. I see. Yeah, here's the whole of 1976. You got a waka chicka guitar guy. You got the hi-hat guy that you need. Sure. You got a horn section. You got that nice electric piano. Sure. Classic electric piano sound. So this is all of a sudden a new band, but listen to it. It's going back and forth between those same two chords. And I think you can kind of hear something happening here. You can hear a transformation. There's this very serendipitous thing that happens when you take these sad, 
kind of mopey, casual chords that we've been talking about this whole time. And you put a real energetic groove behind them. They take on a totally different character. Yeah. Where they sounded mopey before, having the minor chord with a driving rhythm behind it, you hear the tension in the minor chord and the tension and resolution of moving between these two different chords suddenly now becomes a propulsive force. Yeah, and I think that just any chord change in any chord suddenly becomes its most vivid self when all of the sounds of pop or, you know, funk are put behind something. The yeah. force of the rhythm section and suddenly, yeah, a two chord is not a weak chord anymore. It's a two. Yeah, but now the two chord, it's an arrow. Now it tells you we got to go somewhere from here. Yeah, and I must admit that this Buckus cue is a little goofy to me because <laughs> it's just him running with the dog. I think it's there because, like I was saying, that horn sets up that the space might get bigger and the emotions might get bigger. Yeah. I think that they needed to precede the sound of the whole band so that it's not such a shock in the moment when they're going to pay it off. <laughs> they really did. In fact, I have empirical evidence to, of the fact that they needed to seed that sound because I, for a moment, watched a TV edit of this movie accidentally in which that Butkus running scene was cut out. And so as I was watching along, indeed the first time that I heard the full band in was for the iconic Gonna Fly Now training montage. And I was like taken aback thinking, wow, how can they have this here? A lot to all of a sudden introduce having not heard it before. Turns out Actually, you've heard it before, so I'm glad I went and found the real movie. Yeah, I think it's doing a job here in this right. completely insignificant... I mean, it is cuttable <laughs> for the TV version in terms of story significance, but yeah, that music primes you to understand the big scene the way it wants to be understood. And I think we're now up to it, right? Yeah, that's right. We have finally right. walked our way through the entire score. Up until the famous bit. So there's a little bit of movie now that we can jump over, and this is when he gets interviewed by the TV reporter in the meat locker about how he punches meat. And then, like we talked about earlier, we see them uh, watching TV on Christmas, and Paulie has a kind of a meltdown and bashes a bunch of stuff in their apartment. And <laughs> Hey, don't you think that when Paulie, when Burt Young is going around with a baseball bat, and like, smashing his serving ware in a tantrum. And Talia Shire was watching him thinking, buddy, let me show you how it's done. <laughs> no, I did I forgot. I forgot about that. Yeah. Does she have a bat in that scene? No, she doesn't, because she's the past master of she it. She doesn't need a bat, yeah. 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 She and Citizen Kane could have a smash off. <laughs> and then, and now we're here, you know, Rocky's come into himself and we see that he's gained confidence and now it's time to see just how great that feels. And here's the scene. So, of course, this is the punchline of everything that's come before in the movie, in everybody's memory of the movie, and in the music. But I think it's also, really interestingly, the punchline of this kind of found object serendipity filmmaking that the whole movie is living on. Because here it is. Conti's like, all right, now it's time for him to be happy. Now it's time for him to be exalted. So, you know, I'll start with the fanfare, right? Fanfare means, you know, exciting go, go, go. 
All right, and then what's next? Well, I gotta use this theme. This is the theme I wrote for him. But I wanna jump back from here and let's go back to the first time that we heard it. The first time that we hear ba -dum -ba, ba -dum -ba, in the movie is way back 15 minutes in the movie when he's uh, sadly walking down the street and it sounds like this. It was written to be a sad theme. We've heard it be a sad theme throughout this whole movie. So now he turns around and he says, well, all right, I'll take this theme and take this band I got and let's put them together. Yeah, like I was saying in the, in the butt kiss cue, when you take this minor energy and you put this rock and groove behind it, it makes it feel like it's got to go somewhere. You know, the unsettledness of the way that melody just starts on the two and hangs out around there. Well, you hear this big fanfare for it to land. The landing point where the propulsion kicks in is on this unstable two chord. It gives it this tension that's just got to go forward. I kind of feel like that was this serendipitous thing that he came to because he wrote a sad theme first and then decided that he had to pep it up. Yeah, you're saying that at the top of the first three notes there, da-da-da, yeah. you're at this chord. You're at this chord. That's not a chord where you would expect something with this beat to it to start. And because that's the first chord he's going to, he, to get from the fanfare into that, does this thing in the bass. Yeah, so great. I mean, so much meaning goes on in those first few bars there. So much meaning goes on in this cue as a whole. This is such an exhilarating sequence. The music is conveying so much. It's like the whole movie crystallizes suddenly. Like, this is why this is going to be a blockbuster, because it has this thing in it. Yeah, and it is why it was a blockbuster, and it is why it's a classic and on our list to talk about. But again, it was kind of arrived at serendipitously this assemblage of the bits of material that he moves through over the course of the song they were all kind of arrived at out of necessity i mean the story is like you said we listen to these interviews and there's a couple really cool ones where he's sitting down at a piano and talking through the process that he went through to write this he said well avildsen first asked me for you know, 60 or 90 seconds or something for this training montage. So that's when I thought, all right, I'll start with the fanfare, then I'm gonna take this theme and make it move. And I gave that to him. And then John came back to me. I come back to John after a minute and a half and he says, you know, I, I haven't used the medicine ball and I haven't used the one-arm push-ups. Give me some more music, please, so I can cut it together. Another 30 seconds. <laughs> then he needed another 30 seconds. So I began adding these bits and pieces to what eventually became a song. Yeah, so it was just a sequence of extensions is basically what that story yeah, is. Yeah, that's is right. That there were a bunch of places it could have been done. Like, no, you got to go further with it. So the thing was a patchwork quilt of bits and pieces that became a song. Quite, uh, um, quite accidentally, I might say. But just the big picture here is, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that the meaning of the whole movie is defined through this scene and this music. Well, I think and the final sequence as well, but sure. That's right. And the final sequence. And we'll get there. But like the whole idea of a training montage didn't exist in this form 
I looked to see, did earlier boxing movies have a training montage? And I found, you know, there was totally a training montage in... Uh, somebody Up There Likes Me? I couldn't find one in Somebody Up There Likes Me, although that is definitely a movie that Sylvester Stallone had seen yeah, yeah. before writing this one. Because Paul Newman is basically doing the same voice and has the same name in that movie. <laughs> Not a coincidence. He's playing the actual Rocky Graciano in that. Everyone oh, is right. calling him Rocky. His girlfriend looks like Adrian. Like, Rocky is doing an imitation of that movie. But the tone, the whole tone of it is very different. No, I found this Kirk Douglas in 1949, apparently an early box movie, The Champion. Okay. It's got an elaborate training sequence where he does different exercises and shows what he's made of. But it's got the way montages used to be done. It's got this uh, Dimitri Tiomkin showing off music. That's like, here's what it sounds like when he does this exercise. But here's what it sounds like when he does this exercise. And uh-huh. it's like a ballet. <laughs> That is the old idea of the montage of all different things. Look how various it is. Look how much time we're covering. I mean, obviously, the idea of a montage that's all connected by one piece of forceful music is not in any way new. But the idea of, like, exercise, the music is conveying the struggle and triumph of exercise of physical exertion and in contrast to what you were saying about the Tiomkin music there it's not characterizing the individual actions it's not saying here's what it sounds like to do one-arm push-ups and here's what it sounds like to jog it is characterizing the whole endeavor the deeper meaning of you know training and bettering yourself right and that's what I'm saying I think is what pops at this moment Mm -hmm. you know the the movie has a real light touch about it but at some level it's about class right (laughs) it's about whether people who lead lives like Rocky are as good as other people, whether they count. And I feel like all this funk, all of the pop elements that come in here are, again, with a light touch kind of class signifiers that say, yeah, there's something to be proud of here. There's something awesome about this. This is the sound of the street, but it's also the sound of a kind of power. And that's the essence of it being an underdog movie. When you said that what used to be kind of the weak sound of the two chord has now become the energetic, powerful two chord. It's like the cue is saying, you know, you might have been ashamed of who you are, but actually, you know, embrace it. It becomes an anthem. And I feel like this movie took off because the music is saying it so perfectly that the movie really doesn't even need to say it. It's offering it to you in sound. You know, the movie doesn't really have an antagonist. It doesn't really have a bad guy. The force that Rocky is pushing against is kind of class itself or a society where, you know, the specter of failure, he has to fight for his own sense of dignity. And those ideas were such an undercurrent of so much culture in the 70s. I feel like it was already built into the funk that you hear in this. It was already built into some of these sounds. But this image and this cue is such an indelible presentation of it that uh, after this, a thousand things are trying to be this combination of ideas and images and sounds. And words. Yeah, all right, so talk about the words. They felt it so strongly. They threw words in. I think, again, this was one of these, oh, hey, why don't we throw this in kind of things. Didn't he, like, write the music all the way through to the end when Rocky's, you know, gotten to the top of the steps this time and he's able to do it and he's got his fists up in the air and the director was watching and said, oh, it's almost like he's flying now. Yeah, he looks like he's gonna fly. There you go. And then he said, hey, why don't we put 
those words in. And so so Conti got those same, uh, you know, his wife's co-workers and his wife, yeah. yeah, to come and sing, getting strong now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing they say is that it's so hard, right? That's right. Well, there's a progression. Getting strong. Yeah. And then gonna fly now. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about the idea that this is a song and that there's voices in there? To me, it's like... I can take it or leave it. I can t- Yeah, exactly. I think that it's kind of amusing that it's there, but it really works because it's working so well that it can spare doing something dumb like having some voices in there and you <laughs> roll with it. I don't think the voices are an essential part of no. what's going on at all. No, it's fine. It's fine. It is yeah. totally fine. Yeah. And it's fun to have something to be able to sing along with if you want. Although really what you want to be singing along with is the tune. Yeah. Which should have lyrics with the word Rocky in them, right? Because it sounds like you're saying Rocky over and over. Like Rocky's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rocky come, Rocky go, Rocky <laughs> fast, Rocky slow. I feel like that's... When I'm walking around humming this song, I'm singing something like that. He's running to the museum. No, it would be like, come along with Rocky. <laughs> Up the stairs to see the art. Philadelphia. Obviously, you got to get Philadelphia. All right, there. all right. He's in Philadelphia. Well, usually when I do these song parodies, I like, I have a minute. I'm just saying that dotted rhythm, dash dot rhythm, da-da-da, the snap. Uh-huh. It sounds like Rocky. And we should point out that that's this transformation that it goes through. Every other time you hear it, it's just floating da-da-da. Da, da, da. Right. But now he turns it into da, da, da. It's what it has to do. In retrospect, we could say that it is what it has to do, but he could easily have made it be bum bum ba, bum bum ba, and that would just fall down dead. That's nothing. <laughs> da, da, da. There's so much energy in that. Hey, can I also just quickly mention one other uh, ingredient in that particular image being as indelible as it is? Yeah. I really thought this was a cool bit of trivia about the movie, is that that shot of Rocky running up the stairs of the Philadelphia Art Museum is one of the very first uses of the Steadicam, which is this uh, innovation in camera technology. It's like a self-stabilizing gimbal that the camera operator can kind of wear on a harness, and so you don't have to lay down track to essentially get a tracking shot. You mentioned tracking shots before. Well, not only was this one of the inaugural uses of it, but the actual inventor of the Steadicam envisioned this exact shot when he invented it. And in order to demonstrate his invention, being able to get a steady shot in a place where it would be impossible to lay tracks up a long staircase, he actually shot pretty much the same shot of his girlfriend running up those stairs and took that footage to Hollywood to sell the Steadicam. And John Avildsen, the director of Rocky, saw it and said, hey, let's put that in this movie. Because it's the perfect image for what I'm talking about. It's like this uh, transcendence within the yeah. ordinary urban environment. It's it's not a beautiful day. It's not a beautiful place. I mean, it's a cool place, but it's just uh, it's part of the urban scenery. Yeah. And yet the camera is floating. Floating. Sort of magical way through the world. The camera itself is gonna fly now. I actually thought that the cool bit of trivia we were gonna mention is that when they realized that that sequence was gonna have such an impact, Avildsen wished that instead of 
pulling back from Rocky at the top of the stairs, he had pushed in on him. Yes, that is. But a he good... didn't have that footage, so he just reversed the footage, and that's why the dance he's doing looks so odd <laughs> because he is in reverse. Yeah, if you look at the the little weird kicky steps he's doing, you kind of can't do that <laughs> in real human body motion. But you kind of don't notice. I didn't notice until I heard it said in this behind-the-scenes material because you're just caught up yeah. in the glory of it. Here comes the synthesizer to show us how many octaves worth of energy Rocky has. Five octaves. So as though to show the audience how far we've come with the theme, the next cue in the movie is a sad piano version of it again. And this is when Rocky is alone in the ring before the big fight, contemplating things. But that's exactly it. What is he contemplating? Am I going to be the glorious flying eagle of physical perfection that I was when I was working out? Or am I going to be a bum, the sad piano version of me? We have to have both of those musics in our ear to be excited about the final fight. Yeah, that's right. We have to have both of those in our ear before the final fight. And now we're up to the final fight. Okay, let me just say something about that. Mm -hmm. That is an actual Baroque fanfare that apparently they got off of an album called like The Art of the Baroque Trumpet from Nonesuch Records, where it sounded like this. This is the first track on that record. This is from uh, yeah, Three Sonatinas for Two Clarini. You can uh, find it in 87 duets from the manuscripts of the Biblioteca Estense de Medina. It's an anonymous late 17th century two-trumpet fanfare for rich Italians to listen to while they have their Baroque supper or something. While they work out, presumably? While they work out. Yeah, anyway, you know, I had known while I was listening to it that that thing it does, da 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 that that sounds kind of Baroque. It sounds a little bit like it has classical dignity to it, which was an interesting kind of tension with the grungy hall where he's fighting at the beginning. There's an incongruity with this kind of high European sound of those two trumpets, but there's plausible overlap. So it was interesting to discover that that fanfare is an actual piece of found Baroque music that must have been tempted in. Well, there you are. Another found object that <laughs> got stirred into this stew to make it what it is. So now actually just to roll back a little now that I've drop that bit of knowledge going from that into the training montage having the training montage start with that if you really think of that as this piece of baroque music which i think relates to the idea that dignity is the basic theme here because you know what the end credits is going to be to jump forward yeah the end credits is going to be some outright baroque pastiche music it's a fugue yeah yeah for just strings that's right no waka chickas no brass And this is based on the theme that we'll talk about for the music heard during the actual fight. But here it's transformed into a very straight-ahead impression of 17th century Baroque music. In the soundtrack, he calls this Rocky's Reward. And I think that Rocky's Reward is... uh, Sophistication? Is that what you're saying? Dignity. Dignity, sir. Always dignity. I think the implication of the movie ending with this music over the credits is that he may be a simple lug bleeding out of his face, 
but however you felt stirred watching this simple boxing movie connects to the themes and the concerns of the highest art and the grandest significance and even if that's not you know even if that's a stretch it's close so i wanted to say that moment where if you picture that as some baroque trumpeters and then and he pops out of that that's where this as i often say on these things where an equation is being made The glory implied by these classical mm. trumpeters in 1976 in the person of Rocky, it sounds like this. I feel like that's what goes on at the beginning of that cue. Ed. That's when I feel a kick in the pants as a viewer of the movie. All right. So now that fanfare, that was the very first thing that we heard in the movie. Now we hear it again. That is the bookend for the beginning of the climactic fight. And then we don't hear any music for a bit into the fight, for two rounds, actually. We see two full rounds of boxing. It's after the second round when Rocky is establishing that he's actually in this fight, that he can actually hold his own, more than hold his own. He knocks Apollo down in the first round, and he pretty convincingly wins the second round, on my scorecard at least. So, then... And the referee's got them. They're ready to keep going. Look at that. That's where the music enters. And the cue actually starts by kind of echoing the bell that ends the round. Right. And then we get the fight theme that we heard in the end credits. Da, 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 da. If I were to ask you, Andy, what is the only moment of this score which has a hard sink point. To my ears, there is exactly one moment in the movie where a specific instant in the music has been taken care to line up with a specific action on the screen. Do you know what it is? I don't know what it is, but I know why there aren't any other ones. Conti saved money by not hiring a projector and a projectionist, so there was no playback at the recording session. There you go. Nonetheless, can't be an accident that the one spot where there's like a sync point, I think. Mm -hmm. I guess it's something in this fight queue. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Tell me. It's in the 14th round of the fight. It's when Apollo Creed knocks Rocky down. Mm-hmm. We're building up. It's all a big build up and build up and build up this whole time. You know, sometimes Rocky's doing okay, sometimes he's not. In this moment, Creed has got him and he connects with a big haymaker. Pow, Rocky goes down. This is the downbeat that sets off the climactic music. Down! Down! Stay down! Follow dancing along with these This is like the most triumphant the music gets. And the starting point is him getting knocked down. Conti spotted the moment that he needed to put the biggest musical oomph on because this is a movie about somebody getting knocked down and getting back up. It's conveying his commitment to getting back up from the moment he gets hit. There's no moment where this music says, oh no, things might not be going well for Rocky. Yeah, he's not playing, oh no, we're in trouble music. What is really being highlighted here is the getting up, is somebody who's been beaten down standing up. That's when he saves his most triumphant and action-packed scoring. I thought it was thrilling. I really did. And to call back to what I was saying earlier about whether chord changes are strong moves, the ones that he was using for the sad version of the Rocky theme on the piano are lighter moves than a 5-to-1 move, for example. 
Here we get to the climax of the movie. Rocky's down on the mat, and what begins now is not only a five-to-one chord change, but a sequence of them chains together to something called the circle of fifths, where each chord points, strongly points, to the next chord. It's a chain reaction where we're at this spot, that must take us to this next spot, and that must take us to the next thing. And then we go from here to there, and it's this circling propulsiveness of the chords, which is new, and contrasted with the other stuff that we've been describing, it gets set off by Rocky getting knocked down. Pow, he's down, and then we put the marble at the top of the marble run. We're here, and now it's gotta drop down to here. Then we take this turn, then it falls into this hole. All of these moves now are preordained. All of these changes follow after one another, necessarily, the way the sequence is set up. That's absolutely the way it feels to me. And then, you know, he's playing these kind of Baroque figurations on top of those chord changes here, right? I don't think it's a coincidence at all that another place where you can hear kind of Baroque-sounding string figurations on top of that same circle of fifths chord progression, again, within a couple of years of this movie, is the song, I Will Survive. Mm-hmm. Same chord changes, same kind of string runs going up and down. And I think it's not a coincidence. I think that this inevitable progression of the circle of fifths says something about perseverance. I will survive, getting up off the mat, going the distance, the name of this cue. Perseverance is the word. I wish I had thought of that word before. Yes, that is what all of this music resembles and thus conveys. And then the music stops at the end of the round. He's made it to the break between the 14th and the 15th rounds. There's only one more round in the fight. He's gone the distance. There's no music for the 15th round, which, you know, Rocky wins handily. I score this round 10-8, even though Creed doesn't go down because he's saved by the bell, really. And then, after the fight is over, the same marble gets put at the top of the same marble run. And that's the triumphant conclusion. Ain't gonna be no rematch. The one one. Yeah, I mean, it's striking to me that the triumphant conclusion sounds the same as the struggle. Yeah, well, that's the equation that he's making, is that the struggle is the triumph. Yes, yes, that's the movie in a nutshell. There you have it. Well, it's not exactly a nutshell. It still took us the the amount of time it usually takes us after all. That was the point, is to find a way to force it to take the time (laughs) it usually takes us. My closing statement is that pretty much everything that happens in this score invites eye-rolling in many other places where it's done. (laughs) Most other scores that sound like this seem extremely dated and often also tend to sound a little lazy, like, yeah, I know what that is. You're just doing a thing on the piano and now you're just doing funk because that's what was popular at the time and this is all very (laughs) reflexive and I wouldn't think very highly of it. And yet, in this movie, it doesn't feel dated. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel insufficient or like it's cheating the audience out of something better. It feels like exactly the right thing. Why is that? Why is this movie different? I think some of it is truly, as you say, serendipitous. I think some of it is just Mm -hmm. luck that these particular elements happen to coalesce in this kind of magical way. But I think some of it 
also is that many other movies that gesture in this direction, the emotional claims of this increasingly cheesy palette are not earned by stages in the right way that the audience stays with them the whole time. And here, just the journey of it is exactly right. The doling out in exactly the right spirit at exactly the right pace so that the audience nods, that not just boxing fans, not just some special part of the audience, the biggest possible blockbuster-eating audience nodded and said, yeah, we agree, we get it, Rocky, we love him, we're rooting for him, even though he didn't win, something important has been won here, everyone got it, and that's remarkable, a very rare thing, and I think at least some of it has to do with skill and care and craft. At least some of it was not just luck. Absolutely. And a great portion of it is due to the music, having this insight and having this extreme efficiency. And uh, yeah, the struggle is the triumph. Eye of the tiger, baby. Anything we left out? No, man. We did. We got through the whole movie, didn't we? We did absolutely everything. So do you think we'll see Bill Conti again? I mean, he's worked an awful lot. Do you think we'll see him again in our bucket? I kind of doubt it. I guess there's a chance of uh, like my favorite, the right stuff. The right stuff. I was going to say my favorite of his other scores is The Right Stuff, which has really terrific themes in it. It has that one theme that I always get conflated in my head with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. I think that's not a coincidence. I bet it is not at all a coincidence, but nonetheless, it's there and I love it. And I love astronaut stuff and the shot of the astronauts walking in slow motion with their spacesuits on to this music is great. That's why we're playing it now because we're probably not going to do a whole episode about this. There you go. Most of my life, I knew Bill Conti as the guy who bows in the middle of the Oscars broadcast because he led the band to the Academy Awards for I don't know how many times. Obviously, there's been some other people, but he did many, many of them. Yeah, that's right. Bill Conti was the conductor for the Oscars Ceremony Orchestra for many years. There's that famous moment where Julia Roberts won her Oscar and she she yelled at him, don't you dare strike up the band and And, cut me off. And sir, you're doing a great job, but you're so quick with that stick, so why don't you it because I may never be here again. That was Bill Conti. I think his first year conducting it was 1976, or I guess the ceremony in 1977 for the year in cinema 1976, which I think he got the job because of the smash hit that Rocky was. So he was conducting when Rocky won Best Picture. I think that's right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is. But uh, hey, anyway, Andy, guess what? The Oscars are coming up again. Oh, you didn't give me a chance to guess. (laughs) I guess that's what I would have guessed. I was giving you credit for the guess, I suppose. Thank you. You were right. I did know that. Yeah. Well, you know what that means. It means we've got to talk about them. We don't have to, but we choose to. We do. The Oscar nominations have just been released. So recently that we, (laughs) right now, and by now I mean before, don't know what they are. You can look them up. Look them up right now. See what you're looking at? That's what we're going to be talking about when next you hear from us. Yeah, that's right. And what we are doing right now as you're listening is feverishly watching all of those movies and thinking of things to say about their scores. Yes, or not thinking of things to say. Or not feverishly. That's right. So that's what's up next. We're going to give the bucket this episode off and the bucket will be back next time to give us a new assignment. But our assignment immediately following this episode is clear. Yes, our work is cut out for us. Our work is cut out for us. 
And if you want a little work cut out for you, why don't you head over to uh, where you can write a review of our podcast. Helps us out. People see those and they uh, get hipped to the show and we appreciate it. Telling people that it's work that they have to do is really like yeah. accentuates what I've always been uncomfortable about telling people to do this. Like, you really should do this for us. <laughs> it's at your leisure. It can be as short as you like. If you so choose. If you are so moved. You may also find yourself moved to chime into our discussion and you may do that on Twitter at Score Settlers. We, as always, have been enjoying uh, talking about our recent episodes with the listeners over there. Yes, thanks for your continued listening, assuming that you've continued listening, and we'll be back. See you then. It's Oscars time. See ya. And to all the Rockies in the world, I love you. Thank you.